Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. And now, here's your host, CEO and co-founder of Scouts, Max Hansen. Welcome back to episode 80 of the Built on Purpose podcast brought to you by Scouts. I'm your host, Max Hansen, the CEO of Scouts, where we find purpose aligned and performance proven leaders. Speaking of, today our guest is Peter Barsoom, founder and CEO of 1906. Peter, welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast. Thank you. Good to be here, Max. Awesome. Well, I'm going to start out, as I always do, with a little softball question just to get things going. Tell us about 1906 for those of us that might have been hiding under a rock and not have ran into your brand quite yet. Uh, but tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about what 1906 is. I'll dig into some some more a little bit later, but just give us a highlight and we'll start there. Yeah. Uh, so 1906 was started for the large and growing segment of adults who are looking for alternatives to alcohol and pharmaceuticals. And people who see cannabis as an important tool in the management of the demands of their daily health, whether it be for sleep, for focus, for relaxation, for energy, for anxiety. Um, uh, and so that's who we created 1906 for. Uh, people like us who want alternatives to Ambien and Adderall and Vyvanse and Xanax and a glass of Chardonnay. Um, so it's not about smoking. It's not about getting blasted. Um, it's about uh, uh, incorporating cannabis into your daily life. Awesome. And we'll dig a little bit more into that because uh, you and I had the pleasure of uh, touching base. So we'll dig into uh, how strong cannabis is these days and how we might be headed the wrong direction. But tell, before we get into that, tell us uh, about the where the, the name 1906 came from. I, I think I read on your site. I, I don't want to chop it up, but tell us how you came up with the, the name 1906. Yeah. You know, um, 1906 is the year that the Wiley Act was passed, which effectively started the prohibition of cannabis. And our mission is to bring cannabis back to its pre-prohibition status when it was a widely accepted plant medicine. Um, And then second, also to highlight the failed century of the war on drugs, which which really was a war on people and communities of color. And we stand for the end of mass incarceration, the end of prohibition of all substances, a very active in uh, in the psychedelic movement, and so our, our name, you know, stands for. Uh, we should remember kind of uh, where we were and 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 uh, and the ills that have happened uh, through a hundred plus years of prohibition. Awesome! I love that. I love that. I think everybody is pretty aligned. That has been a guest on our uh, on our show uh, about kind of standing up for the rights uh, of cannabis in, in the right way. Um, what makes your brand and approach unique compared to your competitors? And now we can get into, you know, kind of the dosage and, and stuff like that. But what makes, what, what has gotten you guys to where you're at today from your unique standpoint? Yeah, look, I'm a flower smoker. I love smoking flower. And there are times in the day and the places where you can't smoke flower. And part of the reason why we created the brand is uh, for those moments where you can't smoke flower, you should still have the best quality cannabis experience. And the problem you know, when we started back in 2015, less so today, is that most edibles uh, suck. You have no idea how they're going to make you feel. It takes way too much time to affect you. You have no idea how long it's going to last. And so you're playing Russian roulette. And I just, I don't play Russian roulette with any substance in, in, that I put in my body. And so uh, people deserve to have what is the best in a flower experience, which is you know how it's going to make you feel because you select the strength. 
you know what the quality is that was in it because you can choose which cultivator that you buy from. Um, you know how long it's going to last because you're familiar with the quick onset of, of flour and, and, and you're, not, uh, 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 you're not high for six hours. And so a big part of what we want to do as lovers of cannabis and lovers of cannabis flour is, hey, how do we make something that is as close to possible in flour but without the smoke? And so when we think about, you know, a core part of what we had to solve for is two things. One is the fast acting. I'm a New Yorker. I believe in patience is a virtue. I don't want to wait for anything to kick in. And so it's got to be uh, as immediate as possible. And the second thing is that you have to know exactly how it's going to make you feel. I smoked urban po poison. I smoked blue dream. I smoked particular strains because I know it's going to make me feel. And so you should have that same experience. And so when we smoke, we get the entourage effect from the terpenes, which modulates the behavior of the cannabinoids to give you a specific physiological experience. Terpenes don't work in the gut. Terpenes are volatile organic compounds. It's basically aromatherapy that when exposed to heat and to oxygen, uh, release uh, the volatile organic compounds that uh, go into our nasal system. And we have a physiological response to that, right? Um, in the gut, however, you, you can eat as much myrcene as you want. It's just going to make you sick. That's not the way terpenes work in your body. So anybody who says, I have edibles made with terpenes, you know, that, 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 that's really BS. There's no, there's no science behind that. So uh, what we do is we combine cannabis with other dietary supplements and plant medicines. And that's the entourage effect that we create. So in our Go product, by using caffeine, alkene, diabromine, alpine galanga, and a sativa, and a very particular sativa strain, we can create a, um, a stimulating experience that, uh, that, that has what you would expect you would want to have when you're reaching, let's say, for a really good sativa strain. Got it. Got it. And tell us, uh, this would be a good time, I think, to talk about how did you enter the market? Like, uh, you know, how did you and, and your wife go about, you know, getting, creating the brand, doing your due diligence? What did you find? Uh, tell us the founder's story. Yeah. I, I spent 20 years in finance in New York. I quit in 2014 and decided I wanted to pursue more entrepreneurial activities. And Gita, my, my co-founder, had been a more active cannabis consumer um, and it was instrumental uh, in, in her life for sleep and for anxiety. And so when Colorado opened up, um, uh, this was now late 2014, she was like, we've really got, you know, uh, we've really got to explore this market. So we hopped on a plane, got to Colorado, and this was in January 2015. And we expected to find a really robust market with a lot of products and and what we found is everything was just speaking to people who just want to get really high for really cheap. Um, it was just focused on the young male stoner crowd. And it was like, none of this appeals to us, whether it be through dosage, through marketing, through quality. It was like this, how do you take this beautiful plant that has so many um, benefits and then just turn it into this toffee or this gummy, you know, uh, that is just about um, getting super high and without any. So we, it was like, we keep talking about cannabis as medicine, but nothing about this looks or feels like medicine. And so uh, that's where we got the idea. Look, there's a lot of people like us who it's not just about eating as many gummies or, or, or brownies or, 
smoking dabs and getting really high. It's about, I just need help with sleep, with anxiety. I need to be functional. Um, and nothing in the market was doing that. And so we decided, uh, let's do this. So that we then, um, we brought on a team of scientists, pharmacologists, ethnobotanists, uh, natural product chemists uh, to work on. And, and we knew we had to solve these two major problems. You can't wait for it. It has to be fast acting. And you can't play Russian roulette. Um, it, you've got to know exactly how it's going to make you feel. And so we spent the first two years in the lab um, working on, uh, uh, we spent the first two years in the lab kind of working on R&D here. Um, and uh, uh, then we launched the brand in 2017. And, you know, uh, so much more I can tell you from there, but that's, that, that's, that's the story. No, no problem. You know, that really uh, sits with me. I, I think one of the reasons I I'm a user cannabis, I like flour too. And obviously I can't smoke all the time. Uh, but I, my wife kind of wants to get into uh, cannabis and she, instead of drinking, just kind of like that's, that's how I've kind of gone about it for most of the time. I drink a little bit. Uh, but I think because cannabis is so strong that the times that she's tried it, it's completely turned her off. But uh, yeah. talk about that more. I mean, I, 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 I mean, it's, and it's so true, Max. Like what's great. Like, you know, what's, what, what's crazy is that having, being too high on cannabis is like worse than being too drunk or being too much on any other substance. You know, imagine this, for people to have ingested too much cannabis and to have to call the emergency room because they feel like they're dying, like, you know, you don't do that if you drink too much or do some other substance. Um, so it just goes to show you how negative it is to be pushing high potency stuff on, on consumers and patients. And once you've had a really bad experience like that, people are turned off and then they're turned off on the whole category and missing out on, on, on a lot. So that, that was a big part is like, you know, you got to be in control and you have to be able to make decisions and dosage is important. Effects are important. So quality is important. Absolutely. And this is a true story. Uh, uh, Peter is a, he's another guest. Like we've only had one other conversation besides this. But I did get her back to try cannabis again, and she tried the Genius uh, from, we were in Aspen. We went in a uh, dispensary. I said, hey, try this again. And, and so she is back on the train and like, okay, that's, that is better. That's a little bit better experience. And uh, that's more my speed. So, uh, and speaking of, uh, speaking of products, what is your, you know, like what, what is your 1906 go-to product and why for you personally? For me personally, you know, I uh, I, I struggled with, uh, with with ADD for my adult life. I was on Ritalin as a teenager and then on Adderall. And while those products, you know, worked, um, they really left me with a lot of negative side effects. And so uh, the creation of Genius was for people like me who have trouble focusing and want to get some of the benefits of substances like Adderall. But don't want to get all of the other negatives typically associated with it. The jitters, the disruption of sleep, the disruption of libido, the feeling that you're really amped up onto something. So genius is my, is my, is my daily go-to um, in managing my ADD. And then uh, for me, bliss is the best um, because, you know, we all need kind of more bliss and happiness in our life. Yeah. Awesome. And when you've, you've brought this up a couple of times and we always talk about this uh, almost every guest we've ever had, when did you first get introduced to cannabis? Like, when did you first start smoking flour and getting introduced to cannabis? High school. You know, I grew up in a very conservative religious household uh, in New Jersey. And I didn't touch alcohol until my senior year, uh, my spring senior year, a couple of weeks before graduation. 
And then I got to college and I'd never, you know, I'd never uh, uh, been introduced to cannabis and, and, and got to college. Uh, and um, I loved, uh, I loved cannabis uh, during my college years. And then I went to graduate school and uh, after I graduated from college, I, I found that cannabis wasn't working well for me anymore. It was making me anxious and I just didn't like that sort of ruminating thoughts and that anxiety. So it wasn't actually until, you know, I met Gita that I got reintroduced to cannabis. And um, for me, just from a smoker perspective, uh, what I realized is that the high THC stuff is what uh, induces anxiety for me and doesn't work. And so, you know, I always opt for lower THC uh, flour or I mix it with uh, tobacco as a spliff so that it's, it's far less potent and more enjoyable. Got it. And and when you were raised, what was your parents' view on cannabis? I'm always curious because, I mean, mine were, you know, they thought if you took one puff of a joint, you're going to be hooked forever. It was the Reagan era. Uh, you're probably a couple years older than me from what I saw in your profile. But what was your parents' view growing up on cannabis? You know, my, my parents were very strict around all substances. You know, we we grew up in a very religious uh, uh, Christian Orthodox home in, in central New Jersey. They came from uh, Egypt as, as immigrants here. And Cannabis, cannabis wasn't as evil as like the way it was in the U.S. because cannabis has a long history in Egypt and the Middle East. It was just one of these things like, you know, don't do that, don't do it because you're young. But it, they weren't, uh, they weren't drug crusaders like Nancy Reagan and and what you and I got subjected to in in school. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I mean, now now my mom brings 1906 to her church community and her senior citizen friends take genius and midnight for sleep. And, you know, uh, when they get together, they'll take bliss. So, um, she's, she's, she's the most popular member of, of, of the church these days. <laughs> I, bet, I, bet. I mean, I'm going to go track her down and go to church with her. Uh, how would you, <laughs> how would you describe, uh, the culture at 1906, like the, the employees and the team, like what's it like you, with you and your team? Yeah. We no, that's a great question. We I spent twenty years in finance, Max. So I've been around cultures that uh, I don't want to replicate. And when Gita and I started the company, you know, a big part of it was to create an intentional uh, culture. Um, this is about health and wellness, and 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 if that doesn't start in the company, you know, how can we promote these things to? Uh, uh, to, to patients and customers. So we, we have kind of four operating principles uh, or values that we have at the company. One is that people should be intellectually motivated. Second is our employees should be financially rewarded. Third is that it's a place with a high degree of psychological safety. So you can show up kind of as you are. And fourth, where hierarchy is not the organizing principle of the company, but rather teamwork. Uh, and communication and vulnerability uh, are more of the organizing principles. Um, so we, we have a lot of processes um, and we have structure, but not a lot of hierarchy. So we're a very flat organization. We work really well with teams. We have team goals um, and we take a highly collaborative approach to everything that we do. Um, there's a strong focus on excellence and a strong focus on who it is that we're serving. You know, we are serving our investors, our customers, our dispensary partners. And so we approach things from that place of humility of we are in service, we're in service to the, to, to, you know, to the plants that, that, uh, that have given us 
these medicines that we get to uh, put into 1906. So that's what we aspire to. You know, we're about 70 people strong, and and the goal is uh, uh, to stay lean, uh, continue to grow, um, but always have uh, a really strong culture. Got it. And you mentioned in our, our first phone call, you mentioned uh, how you partner with MSOs with your products, and it sounded like a pretty slick, like lean, you know, setup as far as, uh, can you talk a little bit more about uh, that partnership in case somebody's out there yeah. that uh, wants to wants to partner and, and bring some of your wonderful products on board? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So we've got a really interesting business model because if you're a brand in cannabis, there are two ways in which you can expand. One is you can acquire or win licenses in every single market, set up infrastructure in every single market, produce and sell in, in that market and you know have facilities in every single state you operate in. Um, then you get to control your own destiny, uh, but that's a very expensive undertaking. Um, you're talking tens of millions of dollars probably in each state uh, to set up a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of fixed cost. Secondly, you can license your brand to somebody, and then you you know you send them your your packaging, your SOPs, and you hope and pray that they're going to do a good job making and selling your products. Um, Neither of those were acceptable options for us. And so we have a business model where we partner and operate with local operating partners, but um, we take on the responsibilities for manufacturing, for sales and marketing. And uh, so that way it's always 1906 employees that are making 1906 products. And it's always 1906 employees that are selling into consumers and bud tender. So we always own the two most important elements of the brand, which is the product and the, and, and the marketing and communication. And it works really well with our, with our partners and we get you know, uh, superior economics than, than any other brand. Uh, and uh, and our, our partners uh, really get a lot of benefit from it because we take on the heavy lifting of selling and producing a product. So it's a real win-win. We are... You know, we have partnerships now in 12 markets. Uh, we've produced in eight markets, um, and we have partnerships in 12 markets. And so we'll add on our 13th market next year, Connecticut, but then we're going to take a pause on, on adding new markets because I think we'll, we will have the best 13 markets in, in, in the country at that point. And then we want to focus on how do we grow deeper and not just you know expand into maximum number of states. So we're very thoughtful about how we grow as well. Got it. And... Uh, I've obviously bought some of your products. They come in, uh, they're, they're like little metal tins that have obviously a safety cap on them. They're actually really good to put flour in. So I don't know if that was that intentional when you guys designed the, the bottle for uh, the, the pills. Yeah, reusability. You know, this is the, we, we, we really try and focus on sustainability in everything that we do. How we manufacture our products is highly sustainable. Um, the packaging that goes in, uh, you know, the fact that there's no sugar, there's no gluten, there's no animal byproducts, you know, everything is, is, um, is the best quality that we can bring to the table. Got it. Got it. I, I didn't think that was by accident, but those things come in uh, handy. I've got a few of them laying around. <laughs> uh, and seeing that your home, you know, your kind of home is New York, um, we talked a little bit about, and I'd love to dig into this more. I was actually really excited to, you know, kind of dig in as New York obviously is starting to uh, go down the path of legalization and, and uh, talk about how you see the New York market being different from what we've seen previously and, and how you how you see things come, coming down the road. Um, so first, let me say I'm biased. I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> uh, I, um, so you, you can 
you can disagree agree with me on my bias, but I hope sort of you, you'll hear out the kind of the reasonings on my argument. If we think about kind of the, the revolution of cannabis or the evolution of cannabis, you know, it started with uh, Prop 64 with California going medical. Then the second major milestone was, 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 was Colorado legalizing adult use. Um, I think the third major milestone in cannabis evolution in the U.S. is, is New York legalization. Um, because we can learn from the, the, the years of experience with legalization, and New York is doing a lot of things right. What are they doing? They're trying to get you know, things up to market very quickly. So through the licensing of the hemp producers and not just leaving it subject to the original medical marijuana operators like they did in, um, uh, in Illinois. Number two, on social equity, which we as an industry have an embarrassingly horrible record with respect to social equity. This uh, plant has put uh, and destroyed so many lives, uh, and yet it is still controlled and, and run by, uh, uh, and the spoils are going to those who, ha who haven't, um, who, who frankly have paid the price of years of prohibition. So New York is doing it better in a very thoughtful social equity way to ensure that the participation uh, in this industry is much more broad and inclusive that we've seen in, in other industries. I think also from a how they're approaching kind of cannabis regulation. So for instance, in New York, anywhere where you smoke a cigarette, you can smoke a joint. So it's wide, it's accessible. You don't have to worry about you know a police officer stopping you uh, as you do in other markets. We are going to have lounges. We are going to have cannabis consumption. New York is the capital of nightlife, you know, uh, at least in the U.S., arguably in the world. So just imagine the types of concepts that people will be able to come up with, restaurateurs and promoters and others about how to incorporate cannabis into the lifestyle um, the same way that alcohol is incorporated into lifestyle. Like why is it that there's alcohol everywhere, at concerts, at festivals, at restaurants, at bars, right? Alcohol is integral into our life. It's just so normal to have alcohol everywhere. Well, New York has the opportunity to normalize having cannabis accessible, which opens up all new different types of innovative formats to be able to introduce to consumers. I think we'll see beverages take off here. Um, and then delivery as well. I think we have the opportunity to finally get delivery right. Our delivery has been a disaster in every single market, frankly. Uh, and New York has the opportunity to get delivery right. And with that, that means bringing in the legacy operators. So, um, so I'm very bullish. I'm very active on the New York uh, policy. So I'm not just, uh, uh, we, we are working hard at 1906 to make these things happen and not just hope and pray that they happen this way. So I will work tirelessly, you know, to try and create a market here that is inclusive, that is innovative, that is consumer orientated. Um, and that attacks, attracts the best and the brightest minds in cannabis. Man, I, I'm not from New York, and I, I have the same bias. So I don't think it's just you. I think uh, everything happens in time and on time. And the fact that New York is coming in you know, at, at this point in the game, I think is uh, really going to be an accelerator for everybody for all the reasons you said and more. But New York does everything with style. I'm actually going there um, August 9th. I'm going to be there for a... a for a concert and uh, it'll be interesting to see what it's like in Madison Square Garden with you know cannabis probably a little bit more prevalent than in years past uh, so that will be interesting uh, hopefully we can meet up when you're here yeah 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 I'm going to uh, Rage Against the Machine which is not a normal uh, I don't normally go see Rage Against the Machine it's just an opportunity because I'm flying in for flying through there 
Uh, how has your, uh, how did your prior experience in finance uh, kind of help set up you, you know, for, to start 1906? Like you've got an interesting background. I mean, there's a lot of paths I can assume that helped you, but you know, from your, you know, from, from you yourself, like how did you, your work experience, maybe even going all the way back to school, how did it set you up to be a successful entrepreneur? I started, you know, after college, I went to do my uh, graduate degrees. And I think that first gave me the view of uh, that you can, you can learn about a lot of different topics, like nothing, you know, I'm not doing uh, uh, neuroscience or brain surgery here, right? So if you work hard and study hard, there's a lot of different things that you can learn about. So I think my graduate school experience sort of gave me that, that uh, beginner view of the world. Um, and then when I got into finance, you know, I, I, like I said, I came out of a graduate degree program where I was studying political science and economics and international environmental policy. So I didn't know anything about finance. And so I had to learn that as well. And, you know, finance gave me a number of things. One is an appreciation for capital allocation and, and being good stewards of, 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 of money. It also gave me a deep appreciation for the role of regulation. Uh, finance is one of the most regulated markets in, in the world, and I was central you know, to a number of different regulatory efforts. So people complain in cannabis about regulation. And my, when I came in, sort of my view is, hey, our regulators are our partners. We need a well-functioning market economy here. And regulators are critical to having that because if you have good, clear rules, everybody, consumers, investors, employees, uh, 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 entrepreneurs benefits. So I didn't come in with a lot of the bias that many other people have about all regulation is bad or we have to evade regulation. Um, and then, you know, again, because I came at it also from a sense of, hey, what is going to work for people like me? And uh, uh, not just not just about making money. I think we followed a, a smart path of, of growth and avoided uh, some of the mistakes that, that others have made in terms of overexpansion and so on and so forth. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, somebody with the analytical and kind of finance background would uh, like to know the, what the rules are in order to uh, play the game and be successful at it. So that makes sense. What do you think? And I won't hold you to this. I ask almost every uh, guest this question, which we've been really lucky to have some great guests. But what do you think the cannabis industry will look like in five years? Yeah, I, you know, I think the first thing we should do is let's look back. Today is 2022. If we look back to 2017, which is when we first launched, like I couldn't have imagined that that we'd have the Northeast being sort of the center of attention of, of cannabis five years ago, right? Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, uh, all these states legalizing. You know, back then we thought California still hadn't legalized or was on its way to legalizing. And so California was going to be where all the focus is. So as we think sort of five years out, I think we're going to be disappointed at the federal level. I think that we are going to have a lot of ubiquity around cannabis in terms of because of how it can be used in so many different uh, formats. It's not just, uh, it's for wellness, it's for treating epilepsy. So we're going to be in a world where someone's going to look at it and be like, wow, cannabis is, is, is everywhere. Um, I think we're also going to discover some dangers as well. And we need to be prepared for that. Uh, high potency, you know, smoking 70, 80% T, you know, 70 plus percent THC products. Like nobody's ever done that. This is new to human beings. 
so we don't know what the effects are short term or long term around that when you start making something so concentrated and overloading your uh, endocannabinoid system with so much THC. So I, I, I do get concerned that uh, the push towards higher and higher potency is introducing unnecessary set of risks here. Um, we as humans, we've been living fine for, for, for centuries in our relationship with cannabis when cannabis was you know, just a few percentage points of, of THC. Do we really need 30% THC flour? Do we really need 80% dabs? Um, so we have to look at also the risks of what's happening in this market and greater access. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing uh, I just want to touch on too is I know there's an article that when I was browsing your site, you were quoted on about the Oklahoma cannabis market and kind of how, what they did different and better. In your opinion, how was that? What was different about the Oklahoma? Uh, what is different about the Oklahoma market compared to the other markets uh, prior to it? I think Oklahoma is one of the best markets in the country, full stop. Number one, it's widely accessible and available to consumers. There's uh, over a thousand dispensaries. Oh, you know, there's too many dispensaries. So you don't have to go very far to have access. The prices are very reasonable because of the competition. You have a lot of innovation in terms of products and the customer experience of dispensaries. Um, it's easy to get a medical marijuana card. 10% of the population has a medical marijuana card. Uh, and um, so, and also it's very easy from a social equity perspective because of the low barriers to entry. So I think it's one of the most diverse and inclusive markets in the country. Um, and look, they did it with very light regulation. I think it's important to note that nothing bad has happened in Oklahoma, right? Um, we have all these concerns in some other markets about, oh my God, we have to worry about this or that or, 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 or these other things happening. And that's why we have to have, in some cases, such onerous regulations that are not good for the consumer or, or good for the industry. And so I think Oklahoma is a good lesson of, yeah, it's a little bit of the Wild West. I think there's good, smart regulation that's coming up, which is, which is, which is good. But nothing bad has happened and consumers have really benefited in, in, in a lot of ways. So um, if we look at other markets, take a market like Illinois, you know, where it's still the same 20 operators from the medical marijuana market, you know, which are almost all publicly traded companies. There's no social equity, no diversity in that market. The prices are very high. You know, you have to ask yourself, uh, um, how do we find something that's a balance between the two? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. What do you think? Uh, it's, it's the my, what do you think about the Arizona market? The, the Arizona market, you know, I, I, I think has some very interesting dynamics to it. I think it's well structured. It's a very um, uh, a collegiate and collaborative market. That's one of the things I've been most impressed about is how much the Arizona cannabis industry sort of comes comes together. Um, and so I've been really impressed with um, with that level of, of collegiality in, in, in the rollout and in the day-to-day -day management of the, of the industry. Um, I think that, you know, from a social equity perspective, you know, I, I don't think that you can uh, count Arizona as, as a success uh, by any measure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I'm going to ask uh, some, I guess, a little bit more personal questions, but uh, what's the best thing going on in your life right now? I know that's a random question, but I love to just kind of, Give give uh you know give a little temp check and just see kind of what's what's the best thing going on in your life right now. Maxie, I'll tell you, I, 
I feel like I'm in the best place I've ever been in my life, you know, um, between how things uh, uh, at work are going with the trajectory of where 1906 is going, the quality of people um, that I have around me. And, and I feel like I'm doing my dharma. This, this, this is my life's work. It's a beautiful day here in, in New York and, and it's sunny out. So it's hard not to feel uh, very grateful um, to everything. And I'm getting to do really interesting stuff from a science and a marketing and a politics and a regulatory and a social justice perspective. I could have never imagined a career that brings together all of these interests that I have. Awesome. Awesome. No, that's great. I've spent a summer in upstate New York and man, it was super green, super nice. It was years ago. Uh, and then I would go down to the city, but what an incredible summer uh, that was. And, you know, the summer is such a wonderful time there. Uh, what do you, what about like personal habits, day, daily rituals, routines that have turned you into the good leader you are today? Is there anything that you do on a regular basis that you'd share uh, that might help some other folks get an understanding of what helps you be successful? Yeah. I mean, one exercise is, is I think one of the most important things we're all struggling. You know, I'll just speak for myself. There, there are, you know, mornings I wake up where it's the monkey mind going off and the anxiety about this or that. And, um, and one thing, you know, somebody taught me many years ago is that you can't kind of outthink your mind, right? Once your mind gets into that rumination and that, uh, anxiety mode, uh, you got to move the body. The answer is in, is in your body and moving your body, um, to find, uh, to, to, to calm the mind. Um, so that's critical for me. I, uh, I practice, uh, yoga, uh, avidly. I've got a good, um, meditation, um, practice. And the, I mean, this is going to sound crazy, but the other thing I do is I spend a lot of time in the dispensaries. So I'm in the dispensaries anywhere from two to four days a week. And that keeps me honest and that keeps me humble uh and that reminds me of you know who it is that also has to sell our products you know our bud tenders how committed they are to the industry so that always keeps me close to the consumer and and i always do that so that you're never so disconnected from what it is that we're doing at the end of the day man i love that because i uh just because professionally we work obviously in the cannabis industry. So personally, when I'm in any state, I'm in Idaho. Uh, so, but Washington's right across the border and they've got a lot of dispensaries. I go visit dispensaries as well. It's super interesting uh, that you do that because I feel like um, people need to spend more time with bud tenders. I think that they are the keeper of a lot of information and you know, there's a lot of trust that they build and somebody asks them a question. Most people are learning when they're in the dispensary. So I think that's awesome that you're spending so much time time in there. Uh, when when it comes to hiring, uh, what type of leaders? Um, and, and this is kind of what we do. So I like to ask another great leader in the in the uh, in the cannabis space. But what type of leaders make the biggest positive impact in in an emerging industry like cannabis? For me, one of the one of the uh, characteristics I always look for uh, in people is vulnerability, because. Um, um, as smart as you are, you know, you never have the answers, right? As, as, as capable as you are, uh, uh, you can't do everything. Uh, and, and so vulnerability is critical to be able to, you know, recognize, uh, ask for help, uh, acknowledge things that happen that may have not gotten the kind of the, the way you expect. So, um, somebody who doesn't have, uh, uh, 
at least, if not already a high degree of vulnerability, a capacity for a high degree of vulnerability doesn't belong on our team. Awesome. And what have been some of the uh, biggest learning lessons as it relates to hiring, uh, maybe even prior to working in cannabis, just, just in general, I'd love to ask people that have been successful as leaders, you know, kind of what they've learned uh, in hiring. I can't, you know, we're still trying to figure it out. I got to tell you, like, it's really about trying to be upfront and honest about kind of what the, so if I think about where things happen that cause bad hiring decisions. Um, one of the first part is sort of lack of transparency kind of in, in that process before they show up. Like somebody shows up with a different set of expectations than you have, right? Um, that's the first place where things can go bad. Oh, I thought you could do X or I thought the culture of this was, was Y or so on and so forth. So we spend a lot of time, you know, having people meet many members of the team so that it's, you know, they're not being rushed through a, a process, but, but, but the first day they join, they already uh, have gotten a flavor from talking to a lot of different people. Um, I think the second thing is, uh, is being able to make early calls, like, giving feedback early on uh, and providing people with that feedback so that, hey, this is the way we do things here or what did you think about this or so on and so forth so that there's so that there's a that there's a dialogue. And you know the third our philosophy is that we need and want A players on the team. Um, if you are uh, a B player, um, then you need to be able to be coachable uh, to be an A player. You know if you're a C player, if you can't be coached up to be an A player, you know, or if you're a B player and can't be coached up to be an A player, you know, that's a severance. And, you know, we give people severances and, and thank them for their service and exit them out. So that willingness to be able to, you know, let go of people, even if they're just okay, you don't have to be really bad, um, uh, even if you're just okay sometimes. So that way we really have a high quality, high caliber team. And if you're just okay, that's great. You can be great at another place. Maybe you're just okay here. Thank you very much. Here's a severance. And and, and we treat everybody with respect as we walk them out. So that willingness to exit people out um, and, and doing it with grace so that you're not creating a culture of fear is something we work really hard at. Awesome. Awesome. No, that's uh, that's great. Way, way to articulate that. I think... Um, some of the best practices as it relates to when, you know, onboarding, um, and we work a lot with uh, leadership teams, is really asking people, you know, if you could scale on a, on a scale one to 10, after you've been here for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, whatever it is, 10 being right on like what your expectations are, and one being not even close, how was the onboarding, you know, compared to your expectations, really getting that, you know, and that's kind of sounds like how you guys, you know, go about it really figuring out uh, to make sure that you guys are aligned along the way um, for kudos for, for doing that. And also I love leaders that kind of say, Hey, because hiring's hard. You know, that's all I've done since 1998. We've hired, you know, my teams have hired, you know, tens of thousands of people, 50,000 people. And um, it's hard and we're still learning too. And we do it every day. So to hear a leader um, be vulnerable and just say, you know, I, we still don't know. We're still figuring it out because uh, I think that's the truth for most everybody uh, is really is really awesome. So I appreciate the transparency, the honesty and, uh, you know, just calling it the way it is. As we wrap up or get close to wrapping up here, we have a final segment at Scout. So we have a leadership model for hiring that we use 
uh, that we used we we used to measure up to make sure people are A players and leaders. And um, the three measurements or proof points or what we call behavioral uh, uh, behaviors are elevated behaviors are being a relentless learner, developing others, and driving results. So I'm going to ask you questions. You don't have to memorize those, but yep. from those three areas, we'll start with relentless learning. Who or what was your biggest teacher uh, so far in life? Oh, myself. Like all the mistakes I make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, like I'm constantly making mistakes. So, um, yeah, <laughs> that that definitely the, the relentless learning. You know, my father used to say to me, like, why can't you learn from other people? Why do you always have to make mistake your own mistakes? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> is there any any what was your biggest life learning today? Is there any specific thing that you look back and say, hey, this this helped teach me the most, or was it just the series of mistakes that you really owned up to? Um, yeah, look, I, I was in finance for, uh, for, for many years, as I said, and early on in my career, a few years in, I was a, a rising star at, at one of the institutions I, I worked at, had a lot of responsibilities and, you know, had a lot of impact. Um, uh, but I could also be an asshole. Um, and didn't see people if somebody was standing or if i perceived somebody as standing in my way right uh then i i i, I perceived them as, as sort of less than and i treated uh, them as such and and that's not a good way to to treat human beings and so uh i remember being sat down at one point it's like you know peter like on the on the path that you're in, like you're you're smart, you're you're doing all this great stuff, but on the path that you're on, like we're gonna fire you because uh, if people don't want to work for you or work with you, that's just not a good thing. Like you don't have to be, you don't have to be an asshole in, in how you get things done. Um, you know, it took me that that really hit me hard um, because it, it it didn't go with the perception I had of myself. It was true. But it really didn't go with the perception I had of myself, and you know, it, it it took me a long time to to really. It's not something you change overnight. It really took me a long time to work on that. So I'm very grateful, you know, for that person who sort of sat me down and was like, um, that's that, that's not the way to. If you want to succeed that way, you can. But there's another way to succeed. Basically, is is what they is is what they uh, offered me that choice. Got it. And when it comes to you know, I, I think you're obviously super wise. I appreciated everything you've said. But when it comes to developing others, what motivates you so much to treat people with so much respect and develop other people like you've talked about, you know, to have those hard conversations sooner and clearer and, and those types of things. But it sounds like it's kind of your practice at 1906 and just probably in life in general. But what has motivated you to develop others so much? This is my company. I want to work with great people. So if I don't develop them, you know, who is, uh, and if they're not developed working for me, then what's, you know, I should just go home. Like, what's the point? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And then from a, from a driving result standpoint, and you're a pretty humble guy, so it might be harder to, to, to find one of these, but what would you say your biggest success is today, professionally, personally, anything? I mean, I, I would by far, you know, creating 1906, taking this from an idea, Gita and I, no experience in cannabis. We moved from New York to Colorado. People told us we were crazy, that nobody cares about 
low dose. Nobody cares about fast acting. All they want to do is just get high and they want to do it for as cheap as possible, you know, so on and so forth. Basically ignoring that and kind of going with what we thought was our truth, at least. And it's like, well, okay, you may be right, but that's not what I want to do. And uh, having that conviction and, and having the support of, of teammates and investors and other members of the community were like, no, you know, go for it. So that's been what this is. This work is my biggest uh, accomplishment. Awesome. And congratulations on all the success to date. I, uh, I think you have a bright future ahead. Uh, like I said, I, I am, um, I, I don't say this about everybody, but I'm a big, I, I love the products. Uh, me and my wife are user of your products. So uh, kudos to that. How do listeners and get a hold and support you? I mean, obviously, uh, maybe we can go through the states if you have a list of them. Oh, open, people know. oh yeah, for sure. First, I mean, you, you, you can always go to our website, which is 1906newhighs.com. So we're today in uh, Colorado, Oklahoma, Illinois, Massachusetts, Arizona, and Michigan. Uh, Pennsylvania and Ohio are coming in a couple of weeks. And then, uh, and then later this year, we'll have Missouri, New York, New Jersey, and Florida. So six active markets, uh, soon to be eight in a couple of weeks with the addition of Ohio and Pennsylvania. Um, the addition of Missouri will round out kind of most of the Midwest, uh, all the Midwest at that point in time. And then New York, New Jersey, Florida uh, to finish it out. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you guys don't know where to get those. You'll find some awesome metal canisters that you can reuse for whatever you want. They just happen to be really good to hold flour and keep it fresh. Uh, but so you've been listening to the Built on Purpose podcast with Max Hansen brought to you by Y Scouts. You can find all of our past and pre- uh, future podcasts at YScouts.com. Peter, thanks for spending so, so much time with us today. We wish you best of luck. Oh, Max, thank you. Great. You know, I, I just, you've got a great style. You, it's been such a pleasure for me to, you know, reminisce and share and, and, and talk to somebody who, who's so thoughtful about people, about development and, and about this industry. So really want to appreciate you and, and all the things that, that, you're, that you're doing for, uh, for this community. Awesome. Well, we'll see you. I'm sure I'll see you at some point, uh, in yes. either in New York or at a trade show or something. So thanks again for your time. And we'll catch up with you soon. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for listening to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. You can hear any of our previous shows 24-7 wherever you get your podcasts.